good morning, everyone. We're in John chapter 14, and uh, there's some interesting things that we need to talk about this morning that are in this passage, and uh, maybe continue the conversation from last week, but expand it uh, quite a bit. Uh, Last Sunday, we unpacked what I think is a spectacular invitation, statement, promise of Jesus in John 14. He says these words, "Uh, truly I tell you, The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, one of the biggest struggles in the Christian life uh, is unanswered prayer. You know, we pray for things, we ask for things with sincerity, with faith, we think for the glory of God, and often heaven seems silent. And so we read a passage like this, and we immediately discern that there's a kind of dissonance or a gap between what Jesus is holding out for us in this new life and what we experience. I have a friend who uh, a major hurdle for, his, for, for faith for him, his dad's now a, a preacher, but he wasn't when we were younger. But a major, we talked about uh, faith and I was talking about existence of God, all these things, we were talking about all these different topics. And he called me later, he says, you know, the one that I really forgot to mention to you was unanswered prayer. Because for him, that's the gotcha, is the gap between this and reality. Now, some people read these verses and we mentioned this last week, they interpret Jesus to be saying that if we believe in him, we will do even greater miracles, greater signs, works, wonders in terms of quality, the quality of them, the substance of them, than even Jesus. And I want to just mention again that that is the view of a lot of faith groups around the world. And they would say that the reason that we don't experience the reality of these verses, uh, answered prayer, is the reason our prayers are so anemic is because we lack faith. So that's their explanation for unanswered prayer is you didn't have faith, you lack it, you're deficient in faith. The modern church uh, has not the faith of even a mustard seed, they'd say. The modern church lacks boldness and vision. We're not praying gigantic, mountain-moving kinds of prayers. We're not tapping into the full power available. We lack faith. We lack vision. We lack the largesse, the perspective of what Jesus is saying here. And if it's not a faith problem, it's a sin problem. We don't have clean hands and pure hearts so God doesn't hear our prayers. Or we're selfish in our prayers. We're seeking things for our own glory and needs. We're not focused on God's glory. So a lot of people try to wrestle and explain that gap. And there's truth to that. I have no doubt that the presence of sin in our lives robs us of answered prayer or a lack of faith robs us of answered prayer or even a lack of boldness and vision. Jesus said those things explicitly himself. Uh, The majority of our prayers lack very little regard for God's kingdom or his glory or his name. That's a problem. And yet on the other hand, I would say, It takes a stretch of imagination to think that any one of us would do greater works, even the same exact works, as Jesus. 
resurrections, healings. And one of the reasons that I think it's a stretch is because of what Jesus said in John 13, 16, just a few, uh, just a chapter earlier. He says, truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. Was Jesus telling us that we're going to be greater than even he in terms of works? Is that the best reading and meaning of this text? So folks answer that differently. Some interpret Jesus to be saying that if we believe in him, the church collectively will do greater works in terms of like numerically, not qualitatively, but in quantity. Quantitatively, we would do more works than Jesus. A billion people can do a lot more touches of love than 12 or 1. But this doesn't seem to be the natural reading of the text, does it? Because Jesus says, you'll do the works that I'm doing. And Jesus didn't just touch people and do good deeds. And he, he, he had a power. He worked far beyond the scope of what we were able to. And, and you read these verses, and clearly Jesus is elevating the expectations of the disciples in prayer. Uh, he's elevating expectations to like this, this whole other stratosphere. So, and not just in this passage, but in others as well. So let me tell you what my personal practice of prayer is. I try to pray as big and as boldly as I can possibly imagine. I pray with this assumption. I don't think God is hindered in any way by anything. And we need to believe bigger and pray bolder and do it with all the sincerity. We need to do it with purity and holiness and clean hearts and clean hands. We shouldn't dial back our prayers in any respect. There are things that God would do in prayer if we would more boldly ask and seek those things. And I think every one of us, myself included, could even get more bold. And that's why I like to read the Gospels. The Bible makes me pray for more bolder things, not less bolder things. But another interpretation is that some people look at these words of Jesus and they understand Jesus to be saying that if we believe in him, we'll do greater works in terms of the effect of those works than what even Jesus did. So Jesus' ministry of visible works inspired the first Christians to faith. He would do this thing, he would do that, he'd walk on water, he'd feed the 5,000. When people saw something tangible, physical, visible, they would believe. And so the, the miracle was a means to a greater end of getting people to believe. And in that sense, we're doing greater works because we're getting people to believe. Uh, so Thomas and the Jews, we know that a lot of times people would approach Jesus and they would plead for a sign, a miracle, a wonder. And they had hearts of unbelief, but they thought that if I saw this thing, if you would show power in this way or do this miracle for me, then I would believe. Well, Jesus never would do miracles on those terms. In fact, one time Jesus told the Jewish leaders who were begging for a sign, he says, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And they're like, sign of Jonah? What are you talking about? Well, Jonah got swallowed by a well. He was in the belly of a well for three days. And then he was spit up onto dry land and lived to talk about it. And Jesus said, the only sign that you're going to get is my resurrection. The Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and then be raised. That's the only miracle you're going to get. Well, think about the, the church today. That, yes, we're doing less spectacular works 
qualitatively. I mean, resurrections, healings. The, the works we do may not be as spectacular, but the works that we do are yielding a greater effect of faith because you have billions and billions of people that have greater faith than that of the Jews, of Thomas. They believe, though not seen. So greater and more blessed are those who believe than those uh, that, that, uh, that, that see, though they don't, that, that believe, though they don't see. And that's the kind of faith we have a greater effective faith in what we do. That's one way that people look at this. Now, in the context, there's another possibility. What if Jesus is saying that if we'd believe him, that we could ask for the very biggest and most greatest things, imaginable or even unimaginable? And he, and he says in the context that if, we, if we'd ask him, or actually, here's what he says. He says Jesus says, I'm going to go pray. And here's what I'm going to ask the Father for on your behalf. If you would ask, I'm going to go ask the Father, and he will send the most single greatest power of all heaven. I will send my Holy Spirit. He elevates the expectation of prayer, and he says, I'm going to use my prayer to ask God to send you this Holy Spirit. What if that is the greatest thing that we could seek and ask for. John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, is it off again? Oh, they're playing games with me. No, I'm just kidding. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Let me pause there. Jesus says that same statement dozens of times. If you love me, you'll obey me. Just like faith without works is dead, love without obedience is dead. Love isn't just an emotion or a feeling or sincerity or good intentions. There's a substance to it, and it's obedience. So there's a posture here that he's inviting his disciples to take before the Father. If you love me, a posture of love is obedience. But anyway, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him nor even know about him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. In prayer, you know, you often go to prayer. If you knew you could ask Jesus in prayer for the single greatest thing ever, what would you ask? Well, the single greatest thing ever, the single greatest gift and power of heaven that you could ask Jesus for is living water. The woman at the well was pretty thirsty. She asked for water. But Jesus says, if you would ask, I could give you something better than this physical thing. I could give you living water. If you would ask, I could give you my own Holy Spirit. Uh, I could send him to be with you, not only to be with you, but to remain in you forever. The world doesn't see him. People don't even know to ask for him, but you know better. And you could ask, you could have the spirit. So what if Jesus is wetting our appetites, for the gift of the Spirit with those words. You know, we have to wrestle with it. There's a lot of different views and perspectives on that. But clearly, John 14 is about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's elaborate on some things that we introduced last week. Number one, the believer is filled with power by the Holy Spirit. But here's what I want to urge you to consider. The people who best understood what Jesus meant in John 14 would have been his first disciples, Peter, 
James, John, the 12, uh, the apostles, the early church, people in the early church. And so what was their practice of prayer that emerged out of their intimate relationship with Jesus? Well, you can go to the book of Acts, and I'd encourage you to do this. Do a survey of all the prayers in Acts. It won't take long. Every time you see a prayer, what was being prayed for, who was doing it, and what happened. And then you go right into the epistles. When the apostles were mentoring the early church and praying for them, they could ask for anything in Jesus' name. What did they ask for when given that opportunity? So there's certainly evidence that the early church worked miracles and healings and signs, but the overwhelming majority of what they actually asked for when given the opportunity uh, wasn't for healing or the kinds of things that we might suspect. The overwhelming number of prayers have starkly different content than the prayers that modern believers often pray. Take the Lord's Prayer, for example, when they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, what did Jesus say that they should pray about. Some of this stuff is your daily needs, the application of forgiveness, the extension of mercy into the lives of other people, praying for the kingdom. You know, you look through that list and if that's the power and if that's the answered prayer we should be looking at, it looks quite a bit different than what some people might assume. In, a, in another chapter or two, John 17, Jesus is already gonna ask the Father to send the Spirit What's the next best thing that he could ask the Father to do? Well, he says, I'm praying that they'll be reconciled, they'll be united with me as I am in you. He prays for the, the worldwide reconciliation of all people to the Father, that they would be in, the, in one in the Father, they'd abide in the Father, just as Jesus had union and, and abided in the Father. And he prayed that the churches, that the believers would be one with each other, that the world would know. Uh, what did the persecuted church and Acts pray for. They often prayed for protection. Uh, they prayed for a lot of spectacular things, like for the gospel to advance, for eyes and ears to be open, for the gospel to uh, great and effective doors for the gospel to be opened up, things like that. What did Paul pray for in the epistles, in the beginning of letters, at the conclusion of letters? Look at the book of Ephesians, look at Colossians, look at the prayers. I'd like to think that power means that when you or I walk down the street, everything we pray about in our will happens. Everything we touch turns to gold. Not literally, that would be a curse actually. But power in the ministry of, of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, is the power of God that when Christ is lifted up, God draws all men onto himself. The power of God is that when Christ is lifted up and exalted, God reconciles all things in heaven and on earth to himself. The Lord's Prayer, God, take your power, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. So how is that power going to flow through you? He says, when you go and make disciples when people have union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when they're baptized, when you teach people to obey and they actually start to, you're going to see the power of God in those kinds of things. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The Spirit enables us to be part of the single greatest 
work of God on earth. And that work, first and foremost, before any other kind of work we might seek, is stirring the hearts of people to believe on Jesus for eternal life. Do you know that in Philippians, when Paul, I was just, uh, when I was sitting here, I, I couldn't help myself. I started skimming some of these prayers as, as we were worshiping. And I was like, Paul uses the word work repeatedly to talk about that we are partners in the gospel. We're partners in the work. And what is the work? That people would understand, that they'd come to a knowledge of the faith, uh, that they'd grow in wisdom and understanding. And so Paul identified the work as transformation of people, uh, the power, the ripple effect of faith that emanates out from us in the church as we exalt Christ. That's the power. So wrestle with that. What is the power that we actually see happening in the wake of John 14 going forward? Now, the believer isn't just filled with power by the Spirit. The believer is filled with love by the Spirit. So all these things that I'm going to tell you in the Bible, there's a spirit of power, there's a spirit of love, spirit of truth. Uh, All these things are explicitly connected to the Holy Spirit. So consider the highest calling of the Christian life. The greatest commandment is that we would love God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. And the second great and high calling of the Christian life is that we love one another. In John 14, Jesus speaks of our high call to love God. Right here in these verses, in this context, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. John 14, 21, a person who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I'm going to reveal myself to him. And then uh, the next verse The one who doesn't love me, he doesn't keep my words. So this is the essence of loving God. But earlier in John 13, the last chapter, it was all about the high call to love one another. These things are held in tension together in John 13, 14 through 15, the last chapter, you remember? Uh, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. John 13, 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You know, I don't see in Scripture faith, love, blessing. You know, the substance of those things is obedience and responsiveness to God and cooperation. You know, we don't get these benefits by default. You're blessed If you do, if you reciprocate the love, if you walk in that love. But but you're blessed if you wash each other's feet. John 13, verses 34 through 35 at the end of the chapter. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This love of the Spirit. A spirit of love is the consuming interest of the New Testament <laughs> that the same love of Christ would be manifest in us by God's spirit. He's a spirit of love. So you remember how despondent Cain felt when he realized how profoundly his love of God was falling short of that of his brother Abel. 
Abel offered the better sacrifice. And Cain becomes despondent and he's beating himself up uh, because his love has been shallow and overshadowed by his brother. But not just that, Cain has in mind to kill his brother to eliminate the competition. And so he has that problem too. And Cain has a dual struggle. His love for God falls short. His love for brother falls short. In fact, he wants to kill his brother. So God appears to Cain and warns him. He says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, well, sin is crouching right at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, these words that God spoke to Cain is kind of the essence of religion. These words are the prescription that we give to people repeatedly time and again. That if you have a deficit with God, you have a deficit with other people. The remedy is you have to get your stuff together and you have to muster up the willpower and you have to fix it and you have to rule over it and subdue it. Subdue the flesh. Well, love is as, as simple as loving God and loving people. Love is as as simple as doing what is right and mastering your desires and ruling over your flesh. And yet, you and I both know love is also that impossible. It is so very difficult as Cain, and not just Cain, but the generations after Cain have proved. Our gospel, what is it? What's the good news? Is the gospel that we tell people to just muster up the willpower and muster up their strength, and crucify your sinful nature? Uh, Is our gospel that it's by your power and your might and your self-discipline? You know, one of the newest Christian books that is hitting the charts, I won't mention the name of it. You know, if you cultivate discipline and have these habits and just work harder in your power and might, you'll live this life, it'll happen. But is that the gospel? Is Genesis 4, 6 through 7 the right prescription? Or is there another means of transformation into love? God repeatedly would tell Israel, not by power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, you know, the Lord your God. Not by power or might, but by my spirit. So going back, you know, We think there's gospel in judging people, condemning them, berating maybe somebody for their failure, putting the fear of the Lord in them, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We think there's gospel in telling a person to fix themselves, to try harder. But the gospel is that by God's spirit, God can enable us to be infinitely more than we could ever ask or imagine than we could ever do in the flesh. In fact, Paul in Galatians says, why are you, after beginning in the spirit, reverting back to the flesh? Why are you trying to do in the flesh what can only be done in the spirit? The first fruit and evidence of the Holy Spirit is love. Love, joy, peace, right? Love is the first thing in the list. A love of God and a love for people. Is the issue that man lacks love Or is the issue that that he lacks the spirit? What's the prescription? Go try to conjure up and manufacture love. Or is the solution, go 
be filled with the Spirit first. If a person has the Holy Spirit, Paul is indicating that a whole avalanche of fruit falls upon that person. Not just love, joy, there's joy in the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is the Spirit the means? You know, if our diagnosis isn't right, that it's the Spirit of God that a person most needs, then our prescriptions will be all wrong. Why do we bully, try to bully our fellow man into submission with guilt, with shame, maybe some condemnation, ultimately some variation of works. Now you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to prove. And We tell them, muster up more willpower. Love yourself or, you know, some crazy thing like you, you need to really learn to love yourself. You know, that's not even a biblical prescription at all or some other nonsense. Maybe what we need to say to a person is, you know that you could ask God and he would send his Holy Spirit into your life and the Spirit would enable you to do what you failed to do in the flesh. That's a much different conversation, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm not here to judge you. Like, my word will judge you. Like, you're going to be accountable. Believe me, you're going to be accountable. But uh, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to save you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. And the conversation Jesus has next is his spirit. If you would ask, you need help? I give you my counselor, the helper. You need an advocate in heaven? You need strength from heaven that's up from the throne? Ask. I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to ask on your behalf when I'm standing before the Father. I'm going to ask him to send the Spirit. You probably want a lot of other things, but that's what you need. What does Paul say in Philippians? God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Well, if you lack the willpower and you can't get your act together, the Spirit is just a different prescription. I'm just saying than the religious one that we often default to, despite knowing the gift of this age. Now, Galatians 5, 16 through 17. i got to stay with Paul for a minute. I say then, walk by the Spirit. That's how we do it. Okay. And you will certainly not carry out the desire of your flesh. This is a different approach, a different means to a holy end. The flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're opposed to each other. So that you don't do what you want. So if what I want is to sin and I want to be in a different place, how am I going to get from point A to point B? By trying harder, mastering myself, ruling, right? No, not by power, but by my spirit. You want to love God and love people to your fullest capacity? Well, the fruit, the outflow of the spirit is, okay, you want love? Boom, the spirit. You want joy? Boom, the spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You can't even repeat these enough. No law is going to get you there. No legalisms, positive or negative. No condemnation, guilt, shaming, bullying. None of that's going to get a person, right? Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. I can't get any traction with God. Well, maybe it's because the Spirit is the one who gets you the traction for your walking. <laughs> and, and if we're telling people to love God and love people and we're raising and tying that kind of burden on them but not doing a, lifting a finger to tell them about the Holy Spirit, 
we're really just crushing a person. We're not really serving them, are we? We need to tell them about the Holy Spirit and, and, and help them get into a posture of, of receiving that spirit, one of repentance and humility. Uh, the, the spirit, the believer is filled with knowledge by the spirit is another thing that comes up in John 14. Uh, ask, I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Not just the spirit of love, not just the spirit of power, spirit of truth. And then in verse 26, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I told you. Here again, how do you, how do you know God? I would, yeah, read scripture. Yes, obviously, the, the spirit-inspired words of scripture. But know how knowledge happens. The Holy Spirit enables you to know God. You can read the scripture, but if you don't have the spirit, it won't make any sense to you because it's spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul explains it this way. What no eye has seen and no ear has heard, what no, no human heart has conceived, God has prepared great things, these things for people who love him. Now God's revealed these things to us by the spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the Spirit who's within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've received not a spirit of the world or of human flesh, but the Holy Spirit. We've received the Spirit who comes from God so that we may be able to understand what has been freely given to us by God. You know, read Ephesians. Paul prays that you'd receive a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and discernment. Uh, if you don't have the spirit of God, you'll never know God. And so John 14, 1 Corinthians, two passages like this, again provides a needed corrective, I think, for the modern church. Our deepest problem isn't just that we lack knowledge. There's a deeper problem. It's not that we just lack knowledge of the mystery of the gospel of God himself. It's that we may very well lack the means of that knowledge, which is the spirit of God himself. That's why a baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit can precede teaching people to obey everything Christ commanded. Because what's the point of teaching people if they don't have the means, the relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit first to teach them and to remind them and to make the teaching and also to enable the obedience to the commands. You're going to dump a bunch of knowledge on people without giving them the means. You're not maybe really discipling or helping them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach. The Spirit is the means of love, of transformation, of power. It's also the means of knowledge. In Isaiah 11.2, when Isaiah longs for the coming of Christ, he talks about the spirit of Christ that was on Jesus. And he describes the spirit this way, that the spirit on Jesus would be a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If that's the deficit that you imagine a person to have, but you never tell them about the Holy Spirit, are you really helping them? So the spirit fills the believer with knowledge, with love, with power, and there's more. 
He fills the believer with hope as well. John 14, verse 18 through 20. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you're going to live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Verse 22, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas said to Jesus, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. There it is again. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to hold us in hope, sustain us in hope. According to Jesus, we're not just waiting for his return, we're waiting for both the Father and Jesus to come. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, my Father will love him. And Jesus says, we will come to him and make our home with him. We, the Father and Son, until the day of the Lord, the Spirit has marked us and sealed us. He's the guarantor of our inheritance, the down payment. We looked at some of those verses last week. Let me mention 1 Peter 2, 4, 12 through 14 to you. Peter, who heard Jesus talking about all this stuff, says this in, in, uh, in 1 Peter. He says, don't be surprised when a fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, look at this phrase, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In the short, short term, even as we serve Christ, the torrents, the torments of hell itself may be upon us. We might experience persecution, trouble, hardship. Jesus suffered on a cross and died. The early Christians in Peter, think of the horrific things that they went through. But the reason that we're able to get through hell on earth, whatever form it may be, is because of the spirit of glory and of God resting on us. And one of the marks of God's power is to hold us in hope when things seem completely hopeless and filled with despair. People look at our lives and they say, you know, like, how is it that you still have joy? When all this stuff is happening, if I were in your circumstances, da, 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 you've had the conversation. But the power of God is manifest in that you have hope. And here in the face of troubles, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Here you are anticipating with joy the Father and Son coming to make their home with you. The Holy Spirit does that work. And that's exactly the work that the apostles in the different epistles invite Jesus to continue to do by his spirit in the church. Fill us with hope. Now the last thing I'll mention is peace. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives you. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. You've heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Next slide. 
I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded, get up, let's leave this place. Later on, Jesus would breathe on uh, his disciples and he would say, peace be with you. And he'd breathe the Holy Spirit on them later on in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. While we're being held in hope, we have peace. Uh, Romans 14, 17, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're not asking people to just enjoy their suffering. We're saying to people that the Spirit can give you peace even in your suffering, even in your struggle. There's a lot of people that try to eat the pain away. A lot of people try to drink the pain away, numb the pain. Nowadays, tragically and sadly, people are trying to smoke the pain away. People feel like the greatest thing ever that's happened is that we can do marijuana because when you do the marijuana, it numbs the pain and allows you to cope and get through things. And that might feel true until you sober up and then you realize that the demon you drove out has come back sevenfold and uh, the fierce face of your problems and pain return and then you've got an even bigger problem and so you have to smoke a little harder that second time around and third time around and then you have to up the ante because guess what? The means of peace is not eating or drinking or smoking or any of these things. In fact, what Paul does is he kind of flips the metaphor. He says, if you're going to get drunk, get drunk on the spirit. Don't, don't get drunk on wine. Get drunk on the spirit. If you're going to get high, you know, we don't like that, but hey, get high in the spirit, right? The spirit is a spirit of shalom. If it's peace that you're looking for, the spirit is the means. Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything, but in everything. That sounds like Jesus in John 14, doesn't it? You're going to pray about anything. What do you want to ask for? In prayer and petition with thanksgiving, what is it that you want to receive? You make these requests known to God. What's, what's the biggie that you might want to think about asking for? And, and Paul says it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, the Spirit can give you peace. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It comes by the Spirit. What if the key to peace isn't so much asking for different circumstances as it is asking Jesus to give us his Spirit? A Spirit of power, of love, of truth, of understanding and knowledge, of future glory, a spirit of peace, that's the spirit I'm going to send to you. So let's go back and revisit this question about unanswered prayer. If the greatest thing, if the greatest one that you could ask for into your life is the spirit of God, if he's the gift for this age, has God ever withheld his spirit from you when you sought him with all your heart? As you've sought the Spirit of God, has that Spirit ever robbed you of power, of the effect, of the ripple effect of faith? Has that Spirit ever robbed you of becoming more loving and like Jesus? 
Has that spirit ever robbed you of deeper truth and understanding and knowledge? Has the spirit of Christ ever robbed you of future glory, of the hope of glory in Christ? Has the spirit ever left you without peace? If you would ask, I'll send my spirit to you, and you will not be disappointed. You see, if we understand the spirit, then we understand just how powerfully God answers the deepest of our prayers by that spirit and in that spirit. He's in you, and he's going to remain in you forever. Our dear Father, we come to you, and we can only thank you for asking the Father to give us what we didn't know to ask for, which is your spirit. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives and in our church, transforming us, that your power would be on display as we make disciples and expand your kingdom on earth as in heaven, that your power would be on display as we love you and love our brother with a Christ kind of love, that your power would be on display as we grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, on display as you hold us in hope, on display as you give us peace despite our circumstances. Show us your power, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.